Well, thank you very much, worship team, for leading us. Brad, chairman of our elder team, for praying for us. Fred, for your part this morning. Thank you again for being here uh, this morning. We hope that you're encouraged um, and refreshed in your perspective on who God is. We serve a strong God, don't we? This morning you found us in uh, part four, I believe it is, of our series called The Thousand Words. And the reason we're doing this series is we believe that at Grace Point Church that we are to be in the business of becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we also believe that that, while a simple statement can be hard to do sometimes, what does it look like to become fully devoted to Jesus along the way, along the path of life with all the stuff and the pain and the difficulty that it brings to us? What does that look like? We believe that Jesus gave us some ideas and perspective uh, and told some parables in his time on earth that kind of gave us a picture of things that people who follow him should be about. And that is what this series is about, seven parables that Jesus told that gave us pictures or word pictures or ideas of what to look at and how we can envision what it means in different stages of our life to become more like Jesus. So in week one, we talked about the old wine being put in new wineskins and vice versa, and that God has always been in the business of drawing near to those who are far from him. The week after that, we talked about maybe the most famous parable in all of the New Testament, and that is the Good Samaritan, that, that people who really love God really love people, and people kind of who, who love people give up the right to be against them. Those are powerful concepts in personal relationships to, to really get under uh, in that idea. Last week, uh, when we were together, uh, we talked about the idea of the table, and I had a stool up here, and the, the idea, uh, understanding the ancient Near East, how people were invited to a table to, to get honor from the guest, and the guest would get honor by their presence. And Jesus turned that upside down and said, we need to know that God's estimation of us is what matters, and that we're to use our opportunities now to honor other people, not to get honor for ourselves. That humbly we serve other people, not to get honor from them or to raise ourselves up, but to understand that in God's eyes, that's really what matters, how he views us, not anyone else. This week, we're going to be looking at a different parable, one that um, is a real challenge at a big picture level, uh, at a personal level, and, it entered, and we, uh, we get into it by talking about this word. This word that I'm going to show up here is kind of a, a difficult word. Uh, I wouldn't say a, a, it's a hard word. All right? Here's a word that for some of you, um, you have sometimes said that someone you know is afraid of this. If you're a a girl, I bet, now I don't know if you're in the dating age, because I've never been a girl who's dated, um, but I've heard of girls who've dated, I bet at some point along the way, among your girlfriends, you have talked about guys who've been afraid of this in your whatever things that you do, right? I don't even know what girls do when they hang out, but here's a word that is a, can be a scary word, can be an intimidating word, but can also be a strong word and a really good word, ready? Boom, commitment, Right? Girls ever talk about guys who are afraid of commitment? All right, commitment is an interesting thing, and we actually have a love-hate relationship with commitment if we think about it. We love what commitment has the potential to shape us into, but we hate what, potential has, what, what commitment has the potential to show us to be. We love what it has the potential to shape us into, but we hate what it has the potential to show us to be. Take dieting, for example. New Year's resolution for many of us. Lose the extra weight that we've gained from eating all the coated crackers around Christmas time. We love what that commitment has potential to shape us into, but we hate what it has a potential to show us to be, and that is inconsistent. We, we love the potential 
of what could be, but we're afraid of what happens if and when I fail. And that principle applies all throughout. It applies to relationships. We love the potential of what a commitment to a relationship could turn us into, but we're afraid of what if we can't keep the commitment. Starting a business, we, we love the idea of what could be if we committed full on to this business, but we're afraid what happens if I commit full on to this business? Some of you recently have bought a house or uh, have, have been working on uh, moving in that direction. And I know actually several of you have moved in that direction, making big investments. When you actually sign all those papers and you commit to the purchase, isn't it both a love and hate event? Like, I love what we just did. We now own this house. And at the same time, you're like, yeah, we, just, we now own this house. And you're afraid of what you've just committed to, and you realize the potential of it. Some of you were starting families, and you're aware that there's a little person coming into the world in your life, and you're thinking, this is going to be incredible. At the same time, all of a sudden, you're really sobered up by what that means, because all of a sudden, you're going to be committed to being a parent, and you weren't that before. And you have a love-hate relationship with commitment. It's just kind of the way it works. When it comes to our spiritual life, we have the same thing. If you're here this morning and you're listening online later and you've been someone who's interested in trying to figure out who God is and how I connect to him, if you particularly have come down the road that, that many of us have come down of saying that we believe that Jesus is the only way to get to know who this God of the world is who's made us, that here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that, that God has called us to an ultra-high commitment to him. And that, if we're honest, is both a love and a hate thing because we love what it has the potential to shape us to be, but we hate the potential of what it shows us to become with the failures that we'll bring to the table, with all the ways in which we won't honor even the commitment that we make to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know how flawed we are, and yet we know what commitment has the potential to shape us into. Commitment is this love-hate relationship that we have with it, and yet we're not going to give it up. In this morning's parable, Jesus is really hitting this, and he's actually going to hit it really, really hard. And he's going to actually raise the bar so high that it's going to feel like this ultra-high commitment. I mean, you talk about like commitment to a Spartan race times a million, all right? This is like you want to get full-on in, in giving everything you have. This is, this, is, this is an incredible, incredibly high commitment that Jesus calls the followers to hear in this parable this morning. And the question has to become why. Why does Jesus call for this kind of commitment? And here's what I think this morning. As you listen to this, um, one of two things will happen to you. Either, number one, you will feel guilty for where you fail. You will feel like, wow, that was a great like slap in the face about how much I'm a failure, right, and how much I need to do more to please God. That there's a potential for that this morning. I hope that's not where we finish. I hope that ultimately we finish with a with an encouraged view of why Jesus calls for this commitment. To me, that is so important this morning. Why, why, why does Jesus ask for, call for, lead into you and I to be full-on committed to him? Why? Why is that? And I hope to answer that this morning with you, all right? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew around you. Luke chapter 14 is where we're going to hang out here this morning. Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25 and going through verse 33. Um, that Bible in the pew around you, by the way, is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, you are free to take that home with you. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is the third book in what we call the New Testament. So this is in the right two-thirds of your Bible. You'll find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke, again, was an author. He was um, a doctor. Uh, he uh, 
wanted to write an orderly account for people who weren't sure if Jesus actually existed. And his intent was, let me sit down and write to people who may doubt what Jesus does. So I'm going to write it to you, and here's what he writes. So Luke chapter 14. Uh, as I typically do, I'm going to uh, pause along the way as I read through various sections. We're going to break it about three or four times this morning to make some comments uh, on the text. All right? Beginning at verse 25. To set the stage, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, pause. And right, I just... We need to take a moment to set the stage. You, you wonder, well, there's not a lot going on here. Actually, there is quite a bit going on. If you can imagine Jesus walking and you have a lot of people following him, large crowds were following him. Um, this, is a, this is a big deal to understand because you have all of a sudden a man who is being followed by a whole group of people. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> it's never happened to me. I've never just been walking through the countryside and all of a sudden there's masses of people following me. And here's what's happening is that people are beginning to see what Jesus is doing. And he's a, an interesting figure to come near. He's someone who, if he's coming through your area, you want to be around him. In fact, it actually becomes beneficial to you to be around him because everyone else is. And so if you're not out here, you're missing it. And then we need to pause on this little principle at the beginning and understand this, that the, the idea is the same for us today, isn't it? My belief is that it's actually beneficial to you at a sociological level. It's beneficial to you even at an economic level if you are to be around Christianity in North America. In other words, let's just talk kind of without believing, let's just say you don't even believe in Jesus or whatever. There is a benefit there's a, there's a social benefit that you will gain from being associated with a church, isn't there? There is a respect, generally, even in Lancaster County, let's just zone it in here, that you will get a little bump in respect, even from people who may not believe in Jesus, who will look at you and say, hmm, they go to church. There's a little bump that you will get if you're competing with somebody else for a job, and that person who's making the decisions realizes, you know what, they, they faithfully go to church. That means something. It means something in our culture. It's actually beneficial for us to be associated with Christ in a large crowd kind of a way. If you are in the interest of dating somebody, all right, and let's say you have two guys going after one girl, all right, the girl's father is an important player in this picture. Let's say the girl actually really cares about what dad thinks. And the dad is like, well, tell me about these guys. And she's like, well, you know, one goes to church and one doesn't, all right? What more do we need to talk about? Like, there's something about that that actually gives a bump in honor. It kind of gives a little bit of a bump in, in relational capital and in trust. Even if I don't know you, but I know that you're around things of Christ. If I, I know you're around things of church, that gives you just a little bump. One of my friends who actually recently walked away from the faith, um, he said to me, he said, Tim, here's what I need to know, I need to tell you. As, as I was in the journey of walking away from faith, he said, I came to realize that, that being a Christian actually benefited my company for a long time. It benefited me as a business owner and as a leader. I made more money because I went to church and people trusted me because of that. It was a benefit to me to be associated with that. And so as I made the decision as to whether I should walk away or not, I knew that there were financial repercussions for that. I knew there were going to be relational repercussions. That people who used to trust me wouldn't trust me anymore. In other words, just being in the crowd around Jesus gives you a benefit. And I think we need to acknowledge that this morning. That just being in the crowd 
around Christ, around Christianity, particularly in Lancaster County, gives us a little bump. And here's the threat to us. The threat is to be content with just being in the crowd. The threat is to say, that little bump is enough. As long as I'm not too radical, I get the little bump of honor, and I'm good. And so Jesus has all these people following him out of interest, at least at a general level. And he stops to them, and he stops and he turns to them in a very um, stark way. He stops walking, and he turns to them. And it's very interesting what he says next. So if Jesus actually wants all these people to keep following him, you know what he's going to say next? Something along the lines of, hey everybody, thanks so much for coming this morning, glad to have you here. We hope that you keep coming back. We want to make sure that you're all satisfied. If everybody needs anything, we have a few people on the outside here who are going to take care of every need that you have. You know, we really want you to be a part of this thing moving forward. And tell your friends and family to come, because what's most important to me is that we get people to come. I just want people around me. That's what I want, a large crowd, and we're so glad that you're here. Thanks for making the time to, to do it. I think that's essentially what Jesus says if his interest is in a large crowd following him. But what he, sa- what he says is not that at all. What he says to people who realize that it's good to be associated with things of Christ is starkly different, and in fact, kind of slightly offensive too, right? Let's look at it in verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me, and imagine this, he stops, all these people are following, stops, turn around. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So I hope everyone's doing well. Please come back next week as we continue our message series on how to hate one another. And he gives two examples right away. And these are not, this is nothing what you would expect for a man who wants to have people around him. Two things. One, if anyone does not hate his father and mother, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Number two, if you don't carry your cross, you can't follow me. You ever thought about what it is like to be a cross-carrying person? You ever think about what that would be like? In other words, if you actually were literally carrying a cross to your crucifixion or, or me to mine, what's going through your mind at that time is basically I'm, I'm a walking dead man. I, I guarantee you what I'm not thinking about. I am not thinking about, I hope I'm making enough for retirement. There's no retirement. I'm about to be retired, Right? I'm not thinking about how can I make a little more to get another house or get another car at that point. Like, nothing else matters at that point. I'm a walking dead man. And Jesus says, unless you're like that and your future, right, and your future is not focused on the fact that you're walking with this cross and your future is not focused on me, you can't be my disciple. And by the way, if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister, and yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. What does he mean by, by hate? And we're going to talk about that in, in a minute. And just to clarify that, because I'm sure there are people in that crowd, and I don't know, but I'm assuming, I'm sure there are people in that crowd who are like, whose idea was this to come follow this guy? What a, what a nut job this guy is. Are you kidding me? What's up with that? I mean, what kind of greeting is that? I just came out you know, from my house and we're following him, and he says, what? I've got to hate my mom and dad. What is he talking about? And so Jesus, to clarify these principles, he offers a parable, two of them actually, two parables that he says next, beginning in verse 28, to try to drive home what he's saying, to give word pictures. He says this, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? 
For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Now, if you've been in church, you may have heard these parables before. And in general, our understanding of this is this idea, that the point being, consider the cost. Consider the cost. Consider how much it's going to cost to follow Jesus before you sign up. Then once you've considered it, sign up and go do it. And when you go do it, do it with gusto, do it with commitment, right? Do it with fervor. Make sure that if you're ever missing from church that you have a doctor's excuse. Go, right? And that's kind of the general idea. Go with commitment. Now, the question is, what is similar between the story of the tower and the story of the king? What is similar? What, what is the emphasis that Jesus is making? The, the tower idea, we're not sure, truthfully, what he means by the tower. It's hard to envision. But what we think the idea of the tower is, is that often uh, landowners would build uh, a tower or a place on their, particularly in, in, in and around their vineyard, which was often a walled stone wall around a most valuable portion of their farmland, build a kind of tower or a turret almost of a castle you can kind of envision but build a kind of tower that would give them a bird's eye view of what is happening in the lay of the land around them because they can't see otherwise so they want to be able to get up and go and it requires a significant investment to build a tower that will work and will help protect and provide for your land and your territory so in general we think this is probably what Jesus is talking about not that everyone went out and just wanted to build a skyscraper in their backyard but this was a very uh, functional practical piece of agrarian culture at the time. Building that tower costs a lot of money. So do you have the money to do it or not? With a king, and no one there likely was a king, but that's an easily understood idea that you have 10,000 going against 20, what do you do? Let's come to peace before everybody dies. Wise idea. And so the question is, what is similar? Is it counting the cost? There's an element to that, and there's actually wisdom in that in counting the cost, but what is the emphasis in the parable? The parable never comes around to saying, once you've counted the cost, then build it. Once you've counted the costs, then come up with a strategic way to attack somebody with 20,000 people. In fact, the emphasis on the parable is actually that both men, in this case, the landowner and the king, both men, the emphasis is both men lack the resources. And that's the point. Both people lack the resources to do what they want to do on their own. If the point of the parable would have been just count the cost and then follow Jesus... The next thing that Jesus would have said was, therefore, before you follow me, count the cost and then come follow me. Once you've counted the cost and once you can figure out if you can follow me or not, if you've decided that you have the resources to follow me, I welcome you to come. That would have been what he would have said next if the point of the parable was just count the cost. I don't think that's the point of the parable. I think what Jesus is saying is very different than that. Very different. In fact, let's look at what he says here in verse 33. He says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. 
You see, his emphasis is actually not in counting the cost. His point is, if you don't give up, even the little resource that you have to build part of the tower that, yes, you can build, even the little resource you have of the 10,000 people may follow you, if you don't give that up, you cannot be my disciple. His point is not count the cost and then move in. His point is you have resources that are never going to be enough. And as soon as you realize that, Come, follow me. Don't try to build it on your own. Don't try any other way but me. In the message, uh, Eugene Peterson writes it this way, and I love the simplicity of it. He says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Isn't that interesting? If... If you're not willing to take what's dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Now, let me talk about this for a minute. Isn't this odd? Like, just think for a minute. If this were to happen in almost any other social environment, we would think that this person has lost their mind. You would not work for an employer like this, would you? If you were in the market for a job, and you went and your potential employer sat down and interviewed you and said, hey, listen, You've got a great application. This job pays well. You know, this is going to be a great situation for you. But I just want you to know, our values at our company is this. Unless you hate your father and mother and your brother and sister and even your own life, you cannot work here. Unless you're willing to carry your cross for this company every day, you cannot work here. Therefore, unless you're willing to give up everything you have, you cannot work here. We're like, we're out of here. I mean, are you kidding me? Who would work for someone like that? play it over to, uh, to a dating relationship, right? Can you imagine, can you imagine a, a, a boyfriend um, potentially, you know, talking to a girl and saying, listen, I know that, that we're really, you know, there's something between us and I just want you to know, unless you hate your father and mother and your brother and sister and even your own life, we cannot date. Like, no way. I mean, as a dad, you'd be like, get that boy out of this world, right? Like, this is, this is freakish, there's no, in no other environment would we say, hmm, that's reasonable. Like, this is, this is odd. And the question is, why? Why does Jesus call for this? Because he's not pulling anything back at all. Why in the world does Jesus call for this? And this is so important. Is Jesus simply a jealous boyfriend? Is he just a jealous boyfriend who's like, you know what, I don't want anything else competing for your attention. You give me everything or you got nothing. Is that what he's saying? Or, or, or does Jesus know this? That nothing else that you and I will ever lean on will be able to bear the weight of eternity. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. He invites us to give up everything to follow him because he knows that nothing else can bear the weight of eternity. This is why he says in verse 33, in the same way any of you who does not give up anything he has cannot be my disciple. He doesn't say in the same way those of you who have best counted the cost Those of you who bring to me the part of the tower that you build, I will help you finish it. Those of you who come with 10,000 people, I'll help you get to 20. 
He says, once you've counted the cost and realize your resources are limited, you can never build enough in your life to protect your life from everything. Once you realize that and you come with your resources and say, I'm not going to lean on this, I need to trust you with everything, he says, then you can be my disciple. Because he knows this, and this is the invitation to commitment at a really high level, not for guilt. It's a gift. Because he knows that there's nothing else that can bear the weight of eternity than him. There is no spouse who can save you on your deathbed. There is no child who does enough right that will save you in eternity. There is no amount of money that will save you for, in eternity. There is no amount of reputation or business savvy that has the ability, has the weight and the strength to carry the weight of eternity. So I'm sitting talking with Larry Winters a week and a half ago in the hospital. He did not reminisce about a bank account. He did not reminisce about, about anything else except realizing at the end of his days the sovereign power of his God because he knew that there's nothing else that can bear the weight of our souls. There's nothing else that can bear the weight of our souls. And it is a gift that Jesus turns and talks to this crowd and he says, come on, I know it's a benefit to you to be around me. I know it's a benefit socially. People look at you you're like, wow, you get to be around Jesus. But it's more than that. Come on, don't lean. Don't lean on all this other stuff. You are, not, you are not a compilation of how hard you work and how much money you make and who you date and who you marry and where you live and what you drive. You are not that. None of those can bear the weight of eternity. And so look around at what you have. And when you see that you can only build part of the tower, I'm inviting you to stop building it yourself. And give it all up to be my disciple. Because only I can bear the weight of eternity that nothing that you can build can do. Many of you know that I have a dog in my life now. We have a little border collie that lives in the backyard. And um, Riley is her name. And I call myself a dog owner not a dog lover. Don't hate on me for this, okay? I don't want to get emails or texts about this. Let me explain it. I'm a dog owner, all right, who's responsible for my dog. She has not frozen in the bitter cold. She is fed and cared for by people smaller than me, even more than me, okay? She is a dog who is owned by me. I am not her father. I am not dad, all right? She is a dog, all right? I'm a dog owner. I am not a dog hater, all right? I do not abuse the dog. We feed and care for it. I enjoy the dog, right? I like to pet the dog. I play with the dog of my own accord. I smile at the dog, right? So I, I am not against the dog, but I am a dog owner. I'm not a dog lover. In other words, I don't put clothes on the dog, okay? I, I am not, again, uh, the dad of the dog. When it comes time for the dog to be sick and we take the dog to the vet, and the vet says, as they did to me uh, about six months ago, it's going to cost us $1,100 to figure out what's wrong, and then we're going to have to move from there. I say, how much is it to euthanize her? <laughs> Don't hate on me, all right? It was $30. It was $30. I'm a dog owner, all right, not a dog lover. I'm not a dog hater. But I'm like, let's, let's talk about this, all right? 
Now, she's still with us. All right, we figured that out. Sophia or not, don't have nightmares about this. We're not hurting the dog. But there's a difference, right, between a dog owner and, and a dog lover. And as a dog owner, all right, I, I want to be generally, like, respectful of the dog. And, and I am. And I care about the dog. I, I do. You know, I enjoy having her around. It's fun. It's fun for our family, and I enjoy playing with her as well. But here's the difference. And here's kind of what Jesus is getting after. Listen, there, there are people who just kind of like to be around. There are people who like to kind of be dog owners of Christianity, who just kind of like to say, you know what, I kind of want to be on top of this thing, and I'm just going to be around it. I'm not really going to, going to love to that degree. Like, I'm okay to be associated with Christianity. I'm okay to be associated with the church. I'm okay to kind of have it, but I'm going to own it. In fact, I'm going to be in charge of it. I'm going to be over top of it. I will decide when I go. I will decide how much I give. I will decide, and I will be the one who will kind of be in charge of it all. Because I am important. I am in charge. I'm the leading person. I own this. And and I'll allow certain parts of this to be a part of my shaping and my character and my business and all that. I am kind of a part of this leading thing. And then there's other people who are like, you know what? Even if it costs $3,000 to get my pet saved, I'll do it because I love her. Okay. Okay. We've moved from a dog owner, to a dog lover. And Jesus is like, listen, don't just associate with the benefits of following me. Don't just lean into part of that and still hold on to the other stuff. Don't just associate with that. Love me. Give up your resources. Know that only I can bear the weight of eternity for your soul. Coming back to the message, simply put, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. And so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? A couple of questions. How do we push this a little bit further? Let me encourage you with three questions. Number one, who might I need to stop listening to? As you think about the decisions you're making, the way that you are living, the way that you are moving, who might I need to stop listening to? To you, that may be a boyfriend or a girlfriend who has an agenda for your life that may not be right, who wants you for very selfish reasons and not for very unselfish reasons. It may be a parent for you right now, if you're an adult child in particular. If you're an adult child, it may be a parent whose voice to you is a voice of safety, a voice of um, concern constantly, not a voice of trust and faith and freedom in the things of the Lord. It may be an employer who's offering to you something that uh, will secure your future in a way that you, know, you haven't actually run by God at all, but looks good for your future. It may be your own voice of comfort. Whose voice do I need to stop listening to? And the, the converse or the next question is simple. Who might I need to start listening to? For you, it might be yourself. It might be your voice that you have that you know that you haven't been able to express. It may be the things that you know that you should be doing and you're just not doing it. Maybe it's time for you to start listening to that. It may be the voice of a parent who actually is telling you some very helpful and godly things that will actually help and guide you toward the things of the Lord, toward further trust and faith in him and giving up, giving up, leaning onto things that just can't bear the weight of eternity. And then this question as well. And this question to me is a difficult one to process, but it's one that I think we need to. And this question is this. What resource, if taken away, would make me feel totally lost? What resource, if taken away from you, would just make you feel totally lost? 
If you went home today and all of a sudden your bank account was gone, your retirement was gone, and you had nothing left, what would that do for you? If you went home and, and the bank said, you know what, there's been a, a problem with your house and with your home ownership, and there's a little bit of a whoop snafu, and you actually don't own this baby, we're really sorry about that. What would that do for you? I mean, besides the initial anger and all that, if someone were to, to, to strip your reputation away, if that could be done, and all that you've worked to become was pulled from you, if someone were to take your ability to solve problems in business like you can do and just pull that away from you, what would you do? If someone were to take away your humor, your intelligence, you know, what would you lean on? How would you emotionally respond to that? And kind of here's what Jesus is getting after, that we want to be invited to a relationship with him where we trust him for everything, not just lean on in, in part our own ability, our own strength, our own stuff, because on our own it can't bear the weight. just can't bear the weight of eternity. At Grace Point, we like to use this phrase, we'll talk about when, this is one of our core values, that the fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day. And by that we mean this concept, that, that, that God offers to us so much that our brokenness can't even come close to replicating. That the joy we have in vacations and time off is nothing like the joy that God offers to us in relationship to him. The, the confidence we feel in our bank account is nothing compared to the confidence we have in a God who owns it all. The little joy that we feel in, in forgiveness and grace to one another is nothing compared to the great joy, the great grace that God has offered to all of us as sinners through the cross. The, the fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day. And as you sit here this morning and, and you're listening later to this message and you're processing this, here's what I want you to know more than anything. That there's nothing else that can bear the weight of eternity for your soul than Jesus. There, there's nothing else else that we will lean into that can bear the weight of eternity just simply can't be done at the end of our days not unlike Larry and you and I both know this that we will look back and we will hopefully be able to say like he did I've served a strong and faithful God who carried me through with great grace and great strength and Jesus when he stops and talks to the people who just kind of want to be around him, be associated with him, he says, listen, unless you hate your father and mother, your sister and brother, and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Unless you're willing to carry your cross, you can't be my disciple. And why does he do that? Not to make us feel guilty for where we will fail, but to invite us into a right relationship with him to say, come on, Give me everything. Trust me fully. Come to me. Come to me. You're going to count the cost, and you think you might be able to, but I'm telling you, you can't. Don't lean into that. I'm the only one who can bear the weight of eternity that your soul longs for. So come follow me with everything. And it is a great invitation to grace, not an invitation to guilt. Who do you need to stop listening to? Who might you need to start listening to? What if taken away? Would you say, what do I do? Because the fullness of God beats the brokenness of man any day.
Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for a tough passage like this that reminds us of this truth that your fullness beats our brokenness any day. I pray for those of us here this morning who are just on the verge of saying, wow, this is, um, this is potentially life-changing, that this, this is news that I needed to hear, that I have been leaning on things that have been um, my strength and my ability and resources that I'm putting around me. I'm trying to build a tower around my life for security and strength, and I'm just wanting to be associated with things of Christianity because it looks good, truthfully. And I get a little bump in social capital. For those of us who are there, Father, I pray that this morning we could see the great invitation of Jesus is not a call to be perfect for him, but a call, an incredible invitation to say, come on, stop trying to build the tower. Stop trying to get enough people to fight. Once you look at your resources and know they're not enough, good. Now we're ready. Come, follow me. Trust me. Lean into me. Give me your life that you may indeed have life abundant. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to do the things with us that we know we should do today. We know that you are God who is strong enough to handle all of our needs. We pray this in Jesus' name.